0: This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls. And inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have one X, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. This episode is brought to you by bullpencareers.com. Bullpen Careers is the best place to find young talent and the easiest place to find a job. Founded by former podcast guest Edwin Dorsey, the job board connects tomorrow's analysts with today's best companies. Some of the featured companies include Citadel, Citron Research, Point72, and Bridgewater, to name a few. If you or someone you know wants a job in finance, head on over to bullpencareers.com today. That's bullpencareers.com. Today's guest is Robert Mulcahy of... Just Twitter. I just found him on Twitter. Uh, thanks to Maj Swedan at Geo Investing. Uh, Robert's ticker on Twitter is ty- at Tiny Stock Ninja, I believe, or at least that's his name on 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 Twitter. We'll have we'll have Rob clear up that for us. but uh, Rob Rob's interesting he started he's, he's, he's doing some good work in the microcap space and it's an area that you know I love, I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of. Uh, you can find a lot of interesting names in there. One of my biggest winners is you know used to, used to be a microcap stock. And this whole conversation is going to be how Rob started out investing, um, how he invests while having a full-time you know, regular day job, how his investment strategy has evolved over time. Then we're going to trickle in some lemonade, uh, ticker LMND shenanigans, uh, with all their AI-based uh, tweets that they were sending out. And Rob's got some interesting takes on that. And We're going to wrap up with a bull pitch. Rob's going to give us a bull pitch on Crescendo, uh, which is a microcap stock, ticker CXDO. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. Rob is someone uh, that's extremely underfollowed on Twitter, and this is probably part of my series where I, I highlight and I just chat with investors that I think are extremely smart that deserve more followers. So Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So start us off, how did you get into investing? I know you're working a little bit with Maj over at GeoInvesting. How did that end up happening? Where did your passion for the markets start?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Robert Mulcahy. I am a private investor. I am looking to, to jump to full time in the next few years here. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And yeah, recently I did start contributing to Geo Investing. I'm doing a little bit of work with them. Uh, it's really exciting. They, they have published my uh, my piece on Crescendo, my long thesis. And I've also done a, a pod clip or two for them um, talking about some other stocks. And uh, my passion for investing actually came from helping my dad sell his business. So in 2015, um, he, he's a private practice doctor. And in, in 2015, he was nearing retirement and he was in a oversaturated market for his specialty and just stuck in a bad triple net lease. So it was just not a great situation.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, my dad and I spent a lot of time analyzing how his business was run. We were looking at things like his advertising spending, we're looking at things like creating referral pipelines with different providers, and uh, you know, just managing cost in general. And I ended up spending a lot of time reading about investing in business, and because I had no uh, formal formal experience doing that, and I just got super sucked mm-hmm. into the, the world of investing in business, and it was a lot more fun than studying history in college. Um, so I'm definitely one of those uh, liberal arts people that found my way into investing. And then uh, when the bid, it's funny. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say, it's funny you're not you're not the only person that has studied history. I know Matt Sweeney over at Laughing Water, uh, he was a history major, and I believe there's definitely a few more history history nerds out there that studied it in college and are now full time. Yeah, investors. I'm
1: telling you, I, I think there's three three types of people that end up being investors. There's the people who studied finance, they're the engineers, and then there's the liberal arts people. Um, yeah, and then when yep. his business sold, I I got some money from that from the sale of that, and I started investing.
0: Got it. And so now when you were, so you got that initial Mm -hmm. chunk of change, what was your philosophy then? How did, how did you shape that philosophy early on? And then maybe walk us through some successes and some errors that ended up shifting and evolving that strategy to what it is Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, So when I started reading about investing and studying, I came across value investing. I'm a value investor at heart. Um, When I learned the concept of buying a a dollar for 50 cents. My mind just started racing a million miles an hour, just thinking, well, if you buy a dollar and, you know, it converges on fair value, you get, you double your money. And I mean, even with small amount of capital, if you start with a thousand dollars and you double 10 times, that's a million dollars. I mean, it's, doesn't take a genius to figure out that, you know, doubling your money makes capital grow very fast. And uh, that just kind of led me towards micro caps. Because the markets and microcaps are just super inefficient and there's a lot of room for finding mispriced stocks. Um, So that's kind of why I love hunting down there because there's a lot of value you can add if you just dig and research. Management is accessible. And then I also just think that a lot of the businesses and microcaps are just genuinely interesting.
0: Where do you tend to focus within micro caps? Do you have like a, you know, I guess, I guess we can call it a circle of competence, but where, where do you think that circle of competence lies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, with micro caps, I, I had to draw some, some arbitrary lines just to begin with, because there's just thousands of them. So you, you have to pick something to, to focus on. Yep. So right now it's, you know, long only U S only. I like companies that are, generally gap profitable um, because I'm, you know, honestly not smart enough to find the companies that are going to go negative 10 cents EPS one year, negative three cents EPS the next, and then flip to positive. So I like to find companies that are, you know, gap profitable. And I also really like to find companies with high insider ownership Mm -hmm. because I've found that that typically yields good results.
0: So in terms of industries and types of businesses is, are you talking, you know, consumers, industrials, where do you, where do you like to fish mostly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like to fish um, in a pretty broad range. I'll pretty much leave healthcare alone though. That's kind of the one thing I won't touch, which is, you know, kind of funny because, you know, my, my dad is a a doctor and that's the business we sold. So I, I could get some experience, but it's just, I don't know if it's bad experiences from that or what, mm. but I, I really like businesses generally where I can break down unit economics. So that can be anything, whether it's customers or um, for example, like the joint chiropractic is one where you know, they started as a microcap and I believe they're a mid cap. Now they're around a billion dollars. Oh, the ticker is JYNT. And that's one where you can look and break down, okay, well, if they're doing, you know, 600,000 in EBITDA per clinic and they're going to expand and they're going to have, you know, 700 clinics. It doesn't take a whole lot to figure that out. Um, and that actually was one of my, my big mistakes. Um, and it's a a big lesson I learned with the joint, which is I, I owned it and my, my average price was around $14 a share. I had some buys as low as seven. It's around $80 a share today. And last year when COVID hit, I sold out because I thought, well, I don't want to own a, a clinic that people have to walk into to get chiropractic adjustments. And if I had just waited just a couple weeks to see that the world was going to be fairly normal with masks in terms of that, I could have had a much, much larger winner. Um, so I've definitely learned, and I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this has learned that, uh, probably my biggest mistake that I always make is selling too early.
0: I mean, joint went from, I'm looking at the chart, it's called the low of March, it bottom ticked, say seven sixty-five in March. And mm-hmm. it's now at eighty-three ninety-two. So, you know, that's a <laughs> that's a eight hundred or nine hundred eighty-eight percent return yep. that you missed out on. That's a bummer.
1: <laughs> yeah. But hey, that's the thing, is I actually I keep a a journal every year. I go through and I keep a journal and I go through all of my old mistakes. And I study them. And the reason I do that isn't to, to torture myself, although sometimes it feels like it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I do it to understand, okay, why did I sell when I sold? And were my reasons right or wrong? Because that's the thing. So uh, another example I had was Roku. Um, in 2018, I purchased it at $30 a share, which I'm sure people listening to this are thinking that's me miss, misspeaking. Um, I am not. I purchased it at $30 a share. And the the original thesis behind it was, at at the time, the market cap was around three or four billion, and Roku was in. I mean, it was like the classic Peter Lynch stock. I mean, it was in everyone's house. You know, my parents who who have no interest in investing were using it. You know, friends were using it. It was growing, and it was starting to eat into other businesses like Comcast, which you know were you know a couple hundred billion market cap, right? right? It, it didn't take a genius to figure out, okay, this is like the classic Peter Lynch stock. The CEO was, I think he came from Netflix. I, I don't really remember, but yeah, he, he, he had did. experience in the industry. And it, it went from 30 to 40. And I sold it after a couple months for like a quick, you know, 33% gain and thought I was a genius. So that was probably my other biggest <laughs> yeah. So, no, yeah. Go
2: for
0: it. So, uh, I mean, you, I mean, if you, if you bought at 30 or around 30, you bought at pretty much the third month post IPO. So let's call it, you know, let's say you bought at 30, 13. That is a gain, potential gain of 1,408%.
1: So, a 14 bagger? Yes. So for anyone listening, if you can take one thing from this podcast, don't sell too early. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so true. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy though, because you know you look at you look at the weekly chart and it had you know this big spike up a few weeks after IPO, and then you know big drawdown. You know drew down forty percent. Then you know a few months go by, draws down another sixty five percent. And it's so easy to look back and say, oh, I wish I would have held. Um, you know, I'm looking at another sixty seven percent drawdown. But it's it's just. There's, there, there's an element to this where it's so much harder. And, and I've, I've, I've thought about this just from listening to Shaq and how he described his, uh, his kind of venture investment in Google, where he literally forgot about it. He was at a hotel, was hearing people, hearing the founders talk about Google, and he was like, hey, I'll invest. And he invested, and then he forgot about it until he heard something on the news. And there's a part of me that wonders how much of that forgetfulness really plays into this role of just being willing to hold through those 60, 70% drawdowns early on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's that's the thing and that's something I, I've really, you know, kind of discovered. And so looking at all of those has has made me really kind of refine my strategy where I I end up having, you know, three or four core holdings that I'm comfortable holding pretty much through thick and thin. Okay. And the way I do that is through extensive due diligence. So my, my first big winner is I'm sure everyone has heard of and, and, you know, listening to this podcast is XFL, and that's, oh, nice. that, you know, one of those, you know, career changing winners, even if you get in, you know, super late. And what happened with that is, you know, studying all of my other mistakes, I realized, okay, where was I lacking conviction? Right. And with expel, it was the first stock that I had really started to go back. Okay. Let's go through the entire company's history and actually see, let's assess management. And when management says, Hey, we expect to grow 15 to 20% with expel, you can take that 15 to 20% and you know, they're really thinking 30 plus percent. Yep. You know, there, there were several unique things with expel too, that were really interesting. Like the share structure, there are never any options. Um, and so that's that's one where I am very fortunate right now. I am in the um, the Fintwit camp right now that is um, just holding on for tax reasons, so
0: well, good for you. I mean gosh, after hearing you miss out on Roku and joint makes me makes me want to root for you.
1: see I, I needed a winner, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so when you when you examine you mentioned that you keep a log of kind of reasons why you sold, going back and reviewing let's say your average reason why you sold, what were they? Was it just, Hey, I wanted to book some profits. Was it transitory? Maybe one quarter, uh, performance kind of dipped in the company and maybe you got scared or something like that. Like what were some of the commonalities of reasons why you sold?
1: Yeah. So I, I think the, the largest reason why I've sold, and it's something that I've, I've kind of learned and evolved over time is, you know, being someone who comes at this from a, a value lens I always find that when a stock converges on fair value, I think, oh, well, there's no more room for growth, right? right. So, you know, and I say, okay, well, if this has run up, you know, 50% in six months, I want to just dump it and book my profit because there's no more room for growth. And I think over time, what I've learned is the really good companies are going to keep expanding their intrinsic value. So that's kind of my, my main reason. And then there are some reasons. I mean, I used to be a shareholder in Limbock, okay. It's sticker is LMB. they are like a construction services company. And that was one where, you know, I think I sold for a good reason, which is I don't trust management because, uh, the CEO was doing a, like a fireside chat or an interview. And he was saying they had debt at like 11% or something. It it was, it was bad. And they said, right now, just wait. So I said, okay, well, this is obviously going to be a great catalyst. And then the next thing you know, they, uh, hit with an offering of more shares and they didn't talk to any shareholders about it. So, you know, in terms of that, you know, I sold at a small loss, but I don't really care if that stock runs up because I don't have conviction in it.
0: Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. And going, going back on what you said about once a company reaches fair value, there's such a strong inclination to sell. And that's something that I've always struggled with where, I mean, a recent, recent example for me is Kurosushi, K-R-U-S, where, we bought in kind of the low 18s, and at the time of underwriting, even back before we bought it, at the time of underwriting, I thought, you know, I think this thing has an intrinsic value of between 35 and 37 dollars a share. So, we, so around 38 a share now. We sold out at Macro Ops and booked, you know, booked some profits. But a part of me wonders. The long-term thesis for me was that this could be a incredibly durable, profitable restaurant. You know, quick service franchise that people are going to love. And if it can turn into something remotely close to like, say the next Chipotle or the next really popular, really uh, successful restaurant chain, why would I sell it if, if it reaches my arbitrary version of fair value? Which brings me to another question. How do you go about underwriting these businesses? Do you do it every quarter just to kind of update yourself or every year just to say, okay, if the business is doing this much better, then let me, let me actually expand my intrinsic value because the business is performing better than I expected.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of that with, with businesses, so the way I invest is I have my, my you know, three or four core holdings that I will I will underwrite once a year. I mean, and I will just let them sit. And then I have like a basket of like seven or so special situations um, okay. because in, in micro caps, I've just learned, you know, sometimes I'll own a stock because I know they're gonna get bought out. It's just, you know, so small, they say they wanna sell. It's obvious, you know, you hold it for six months you that know, this thing hasn't moved at all. <laughs> and then you, you find a better use for capital. And then of course, two months later, it gets bought out, right? So yep. I've kind of learned in those situations just to leave them. Um, so. For my core holdings, like I said, once a year, and it can really depend. I mean, so for example, Crescendo, which we'll talk about, I mean, that is, you know, on a comps basis with price to sales, because that's just what UCAS peers trade for, right? Trade on price to sales, because no one's gap profitable, except Crescendo. Um, and then for other ones, it you know, it could be, you know, like a, a loose model. Um, you know, it's, it is kind of interesting. I've noticed a lot of companies now are, you know, on um price to sales or price to EBITDA, you know, seems like very few companies are trading on earnings anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can do that, and I actually um, so for example, I mean, there's there's one business that I I you know would talk about, so like Acorn Energy, a ticker is ACFN, they're on the okay. OTC. Um, that's like a really interesting idea of okay, it's a super simple business to underwrite that you know, I could update you know, once a quarter when earnings come out. So they, make, um, they do remote monitoring of power generators and gas pipelines through a company oh. called Omnimetrics that they, they own 99% of. And then this, the original founder owns the other 1%. It's like a $20 million market cap and they do 6 million in sales. It's growing every quarter. It's growing 20 to 30% a year. And the, the CEO is like the super nice guy who's a, a value investor. Um, he owns 20% of the company and he said, Hey, I mean, these businesses sell for three to five times revenue. So, you know, th- businesses like that, they don't take much to update, you know, mm-hmm. when earnings come out and they earn 7 million and, you know, for three to five times revenue, you know, there's your fair value. Um, so, and then I, and uh, just as a, a funny story with Acorn. So, the CEO is he's a super nice guy. He's in his sixties. And um, one question I always like to try to ask management is, you know, Hey, if, you know, if you own so much of the stock and you're going to sell the business, why do you want to you know, keep going? Um, because in Acorn's case, he says that after they sell, they want to keep the, the shell of the business of Acorn because they have $70 million in NOLs and he wants to go for another round. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said well why do you want to keep going I mean if you're going to sell this business you're going to you know have a nice payday here and he actually responded to uh, an email that I sent him at 11:30 at night on a Saturday and he said oh I have like six kids and 20 grandkids my wife tells me I have to work until I'm 85. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good answer.
1: Yeah so super nice guy but I mean you know businesses like that Most of them I'll just update like once a quarter. And I've learned to trust myself with that, you know, because especially with micro caps, I mean, you can have days where things are trading down 10% in a day. And it's just because, you know, a shareholder wants out and they're just dumping or um, someone placed a market order (laughs) instead of a limit order, you know, they got pleased.
0: When it comes to portfolio construction, You mentioned you've got about three to four core holdings and then I think you said somewhere between seven or so special Mm -hmm. situations. What percentages are you are you divvying those out? I I assume the core holdings are probably something larger, maybe between eight and ten percent, and then your special situations are, you know, one to three, one to four. Am I you know how off how off am I on that?
1: Um, so I'm very concentrated. So I I don't I'm not interested in a core holding unless I'm willing to put twenty percent at cost in it. Well, there you go. I know that freaks some people out, but, you know, there are some, there's some, you know, micro cap investors that ride with one to two stocks. So, it, you know, it all depends on what's risky. Now, like I've said, though, for me, that those are companies that I'm, you know, going back and looking. I mean, so for Crescendo, I've gone back 50 years on Steve Mihalo, the CEO. So I have a lot of conviction with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that with something like, like Acorn Energy, for example, which I, I also own, but. Mm-hmm. So uh, the three to four core, core holdings we're looking at, you know, twenty percent at cost, and then the special situations is going to be the rest, and that's just those are opportunistic.
0: Got it. i admit, I like that uh, conviction. The only the only person that's had stronger conviction on this podcast was Will Thrower, and his entire portfolio is made up of Advanced Nanotech Limited, which is a mineral sunscreen company out of Australia. It's just got one position, hundred percent of his portfolio. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's amazing. See, uh, yeah may, maybe, maybe when I'm back on later, I'll, you know, come at you with, yeah, I own two stocks or something. Who knows?
0: <laughs> Who knows? I mean, Hey, if it was expel and joint, then just own two stocks and call it a day. Right. See,
1: th- is that risky? Not really, you know, but the way they execute.
0: Yeah. Hindsight's never risky though. That's the beautiful part.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, and that's the thing too, is, is I, I've really learned with investing. You have to be comfortable with, you know, you can have a really great process and a bad outcome, I mean, and you just kind of have to live with that.
0: Yeah. And that's, and just, just even kind of flipping that on its head too, you can have a bad process and a great outcome. And that's probably more dangerous than anything because you don't know if, if what, if the profits that you received were from something that you should repeat or something that was, that was robust. Um, You know, I, 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 I always ask myself that when I'm looking at short-term share gains in any new names or any new research that I do, it's, you know, I have to, I have to learn to detach like just because a stock went up after I wrote about it or after I bought, that doesn't mean that I'm right. Just as if a stock goes down after I bought or after I researched doesn't mean I'm wrong. There's, there's, it's, it's just so important to kind of detach yourself from the short-term price.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's totally true. And that's, that's the thing that I find a lot of people in investing really struggle with is, you know, when they're, when they're up, 50% Fifty percent in three months—they're a genius. Um, whether their process was good or bad, but you know, when they have a ten percent, you know, down day on the e-liquid stock, they, you know, freak out, and wonder what's going on, and you have to, you know, trust what you're doing.
0: And that's always been my my rub on 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 Twitter and kind of the FinTwit community. And I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but it seems that people use short-term share price gains to kind of, you know, trot trot the bases saying, you know, how well how well they pitch the stock and then as soon as that stock does poorly over the course of, you know, a few days or a few weeks, they are also the quickest people to shout how long-term mindset matters. And I just don't think you can have it both ways. You can't celebrate short-term gains thinking you're a genius and then you also can't hide behind the long-term nature of your investments and I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is like you can't take credit for the gains without also um, doing the exact same thing for when a stock goes down. You just have to be consistent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that.
0: One thing I want to discuss that's going to be interesting is the Lemonade shenanigans that happened on Twitter. So for those that aren't aware, um, you know, maybe Rob, you can give them a better, better background than what I'm going to do. But I think at one point, Lemonade released a Twitter thread. Someone at Lemonade, ticker LMND, released a Twitter thread saying roughly that they use AI and kind of speech recognition to determine if someone, I guess, is being truthful or not about the claim, the the auto insurance claim that they're filing or something, something along those lines. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. You said in our discussions earlier that you used to work in insurance. So walk us through maybe from an insurance person's standpoint, how interesting from a politically correct term, how, how, how interesting that thread was.
1: Yeah. Um, So before I before I say this, um, I do not own Lemonade. Um, However, I know Lemonade has a very passionate shareholder base. Um, And if anyone actually explain what I'm about to lay out, please reach out to me. Um, Please go ahead. Um, As long as you're not just regurgitating what Lemonade's. So, Lemonade released a AI to um, determine approval or denial of claims. So it's based on things like verbal cues. And then, um, I mean, I know in, in, you know, prepping for this, you said, okay, is that a, you know, a ludicrous claim or not? Well, it is because Lemonade themselves later redacted and clarified their own claim. So it, it, in that case, I think it was kind of a ludicrous claim. Now, the thing about Lemonade that I think gets lost on a lot of its, its fans and its shareholders is they are trying to revolutionize insurance through, you know, AI and stuff. So, I mean, for example, they're like just starting at a very high level with Lemonade, their entire marketing pitch through commercials is, you know, Lemonade's not like a normal insurance company. You just pay us a small monthly premium and then we take the rest and cover your stuff. We're not like a normal insurance company. Now, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong Brandon, but is that not exactly how insurance works at a high level? A, it sounds
0: like an insurance company, but I will say before before you go, I I did use Lemonade for my pet insurance when I got my dog, and from a customer perspective, I haven't had to file a claim, so this, you know, take all this with a grain of salt, but I loved how simple it was. Maybe you don't want something so simple in insurance, maybe that's because they're just getting, you know, you're getting what you pay for, but I did enjoy that process of getting pet insurance. So go ahead, continue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, and I actually, when, when kind of testing this out and poking around in the idea, I, I um, tested signing up for an insurance policy and it, it was a smooth process. I'm not gonna deny that. I mean, it, it is a really good user experience. So Lemonade actually retracted that claim about using AI and they said, oh no, no, no. What we actually do is we use AI to then shoot off the claim to a human investigator to see if there's any types of fraudulent behavior. Now, that is exactly how this works at major carriers. So, what happens at major carriers is a claim is filed and we see okay, you know, Brandon has had two very similar losses and then in the past he was also a, you know, an auto policy like he was in the vehicle for a third similar loss. Those claims are automatically flagged already. Mm-hmm. So Lemonade is trying to reinvent the wheel on something that insurance already has a big business in dealing with. So all major carriers have something called SIU, which is Special Investigations Unit. And these guys are like CIA agents who do stakeouts, they canvas, they take like weeks to build up cases, cases to bust auto rings. I mean, Lemonade is saying we use AS and we can solve the claim in seconds. And then when they actually explain it more fully, they. doing the same process as everyone else right so that's the the first issue with lemonade okay the the second issue i see with lemonade is they keep saying that they're a capital light business and insurance is a super capital intensive business i mean literally at the heart of it they're paying you for your losses (laughs) i mean that's they're just giving you capital i mean you can't be a capital light insurance business um and I, i think they can kind of skate by with that with you know, homeowners, renters, which are relatively simple insurance mm-hmm. lines. But I, I've seen recently that they're starting to, to test out expanding auto. And auto is just the most capital intensive insurance business possible because you have to have field reps. You have to have adjusters. You have to start building out networks with um, collision centers. Yep. I mean, you have to have relationships with Copart or IAA for when cars are totaled. Then you have to deal with auctions there. So the, the issue that I have with that is Lemonade is trying to say, okay, well, you know, we're not like an insurance company and we're capital light. And then kind of my third issue with Lemonade is the way that their reinsurance is structured. Okay. So um, this is actually coming directly from this, uh, this book that I have here. I don't know if you can see it.
0: The Making of Lemonade? The Making oh, of I Lemonade. I that
1: book. It, it's, um, yeah, it's like a hundred page book written by the guys who founded Lemonade. Huh, and um, what they what they did for their reinsurance, so for anyone who doesn't know, reinsurance at a really high level is insurance for insurance companies, and state regulators make insurance companies have reinsurance because they have to be insured in case there's a catastrophe, so if there's like a hurricane or something right yeah so it caps losses for for an insurance company. What lemonade has done is they've created little pools of people. So instead of, you know, all of the homes in Florida, it's, you know, a hundred people in Tampa and 50 people in Chicago, and they have these little pools and then they dump all of those little pools on reinsurers, but they make reinsurers take all of the pools anyway. So to me, it seems just a lot like normal reinsurance just split up differently and lemonade claims it's, it's revolutionary. And I have yet to find a single person in insurance who can explain to me how this is, a viable solution. so, And I, I think we're kind of seeing proof right now that Lemonade doesn't work. I mean, and I, I haven't looked into it if there's any exercise of options, but I mean, last year at this time, 11 million shares outstanding. This year, there's 60. Yeah. So I don't think it's a, a great business model. And I think what we're seeing with Lemonade with the way that they're kind of Retracting certain claims and they're expanding. Is the more and more they expand and grow, the more they're starting to look just like a normal insurance carrier.
0: Got it. So I've got a few questions to unpack from this. The first one it's kind of just an obvious question, which is maybe maybe a bit loaded. But how does Lemonade win? What is what is the bull case? Clearly, as you as you mentioned, they have a devoted fan base. Um, how how do they win? Like what do the Bulls? tend to lean on when they say, you know, you're wrong. Lemonade's gonna do this. Lemonade's gonna do XYZ. What are what are what are those bullet points?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the, the first and most obvious bull case is they are a um a B court. So they're like a public benefit corporation. So they give a, a proceed of some of the premium to you know, predetermined charities that people like. So there's this, this social component that I think really resonates with a lot of millennials. Mm-hmm. And then, but other than that, I mean, the way you win an insurance is through pricing. It's It's a complete commodity experience. So what happens in insurance with people is you have a claim and either the claim goes well and you stay with your carrier or the claim goes poorly and you shop around. And even if the claim goes well, eventually you're going to get a quote for a renewal that you don't like, and you're going to shop around again. So that's the thing is, you know, there's kind of a cap in insurance. And I don't know exactly what it's at right now, but if you look at, you know, like Progressive, Geico, State Farm, they can only capture like 14% of the market. So Lemonade's, you know, ability to expand is going to be capped at around that number anyway.
0: Got it. I wonder going forward if the commodity isn't going to be around price, but around ease of use, and ability, you know, ease, easeability, and you know, the only reason I say that is Lemonade has a very seamless experience. Uh, you can, you can get quotes, you can get, you know, basically certificates of insurance, very, very quickly. Um, and you know, I just, I just wonder if, if, if that going forward over the next five to ten years is what people actually compare uh, insurances against—not necessarily the price, but against the ease of doing business with that company
1: yeah i i absolutely agree i mean so another interesting insure tech right now is root insurance the ticker is r-o-o-t yep Um, they're based in columbus ohio and they are primarily auto right now yeah and so what's interesting about them is they use telematics from your phone in order to price your auto policies and their whole their whole you know elevator pitch is they're using telematics to assess your driving behavior and all you have to do is just take your phone in the car with you, and then they can give you a quote and they kind of weed out the bad drivers and keep the good, but the good drivers get a better quote. Now, I think the thing about Root that's really interesting that, you know, lemonade would also have too, is that Root is really open about that their, their code is new. So these old insurance carriers, and I used to be at a major carrier have ancient code. I mean, it's, I, I it's probably Cobol. Um, it's, it's bad. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't have the ability to update things. So for example, um, like progressive with their snapshot, they also use telematics to help price data, but the telematics is just one extra data point on top of the already traditional underwriting model of age income, you know? So root is just using driving behavior. Now the downside of that is it takes two weeks to get a, to get a quote from root, which I think, you know, in, the, the world of instant gratification isn't great. But the upside is you can get a really good quote. Now, in terms of what you're saying, I see Root is having an interesting you know value pitch too, which is if you want to um, go back to them, they can cancel your current insurance policy so you don't have to call you know Geico and cancel. They'll do that for you and then they'll reinstate your policy. And mm-hmm. you can do that through a couple taps in their app. So that's another insurance company that I think is, maybe more likely to disrupt than Lemonade. And the reason I think that is because they're starting with auto, which is kind of a, a harder insurance market than something yeah. like renters.
2: Yeah.
0: I know Edwin Dorsey at Stock Jabber on Twitter, absolutely ripped Root a new one on his Bear Cave newsletter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's I mean there's something to be said I know there's a lot of sketch I mean not sketchy but just a lot of not great things going on with this company and it's down 60% from IPO which yeah in 2021 to be an IPO and down 60% it, you have to that's almost a skill at that point
1: it it, it takes a special company to be down this yeah. year yeah yeah so
0: <laughs> IPO. one one question I have there's a lot of money a lot of fintech money pouring into insurance and from your background working in insurance, what is it going to take for a company to have a legitimate shot at disrupting insurance in a, in a durable long-term way where lemonade has its structural issues? Is every new fintech insurance company going to go through the same hurdles or is there, you know, I guess call it a secret sauce where if a company does X, Y, Z, then they're going to have the best shot at disrupting this huge industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing about insurance is I think the longer a company is going to be in insurance the and, you know, be successful and actually, you know, profitable and not just dilute you like crazy, the more and more they're going to just start looking like the other major carriers. And a lot of that is due to regulation because insurance companies are heavily regulated based on, you know, having reinsurance. They're heavily regulated based on, I mean, like a script on even what you can say if a vehicle is a total loss based on what state you're in. I mean, these things are regulated like crazy. And the reason for that is you have to make sure customers are taken care of and provided for. And I I will say, I think something like a a really fine point on insurance that gets lost on a lot of people is the, the edge with combined ratio has to come from somewhere. So Mm -hmm. combined ratio, if you, um, you know, charge a hundred dollars for a policy and all of your expenses running the company are $90. The company keeps 10%. That's a combined ratio of 90. Um, And usually in insurance, the the mantra is the lower, the better for anyone who doesn't know. It's like
0: golf basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like golf. Yeah. You want a lower combined ratio, but the thing is the, the edge in that combined ratio has to come from somewhere. So just using like two major carriers as an example. So at state farm, generally speaking, the premiums are higher. And when the premiums are higher at State Farm, what do you get? Well, when you have an accident and your house floods, State Farm is gonna take care of you and put you in a four-star hotel and you're gonna have a great time. And you're gonna love State Farm and be with them forever. Now, if you're at a company like Progressive and the rates are a lot lower, when you have a total loss, they get really nitpicky with the the conditioning on your vehicle. And they they deduct for certain things that you know State Farm never would. Now, both are offering value to the customer because you're either being taken care of in your time of need or you're getting a good rate on you know pretty good insurance. But the thing is, I think as these companies mature, they all kind of gravitate towards the middle of just being, you know, a fairly standard carrier and fairly standard option. So I think in terms of disrupting an insurance, it's really going to be who can provide the best service at the lowest cost and have the best claims experience because the claims experience is really the, you know, what determines the people who succeed in insurance and the people who don't.
0: Yeah. And I guess the claims experience too, is really the only point at which customers truly engage with the insurance company. So if you can't nail that experience, Mm-hmm. And there's something wrong, and I think I think that was also one of the one of the uh, detractors from Root, where when customers have to engage with Root for claims, it was always a terrible experience. Um, and I'm just I'm just looking at you know two two insurance companies here, Allstate and Progressive, and Allstate's at five times earnings, and Progressive is at eight times earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of that I guess is from COVID and people staying inside, not as many accidents, but it still you know makes you wonder like why. Why go with Lemonade or one of these other, you know, um, off the off the block new new off the block insurance companies when these stalwarts are trading at pretty attractive prices?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the thing is is they all kind of end up trading as as you know value stocks. Yep. Um, And it is kind of interesting if you look at you know Lemonade and it's trading like a a hyper growth stock. I mean, but I think they also. I mean in the most recent quarter I think it was something like 26 million in revenue and a loss of 49 million so not, not really attractive to to a lot of investors
0: you got to make it up in volume is what they say <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely
0: all right, let's move on to Crescendo, which is you know, one of, one of the reasons that we kind wanted of to, wanted to have this podcast. So from a 30,000-foot view, what is Crescendo? What's the bull thesis? And kind of why should people even care about this company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Crescendo is one of my largest holdings. Um, I really like this stock a lot. So from a 30,000-foot view, if I had to give an elevator pitch on Crescendo, um, the CEO of Crescendo is a man named Steve Mihalo. And from 1969 to 2007, he ran a company called Intertel, which was also in the telecom industry. And Mihalo took it from $0 in revenue to $500 million in revenue. And he was doing it primarily doing two things. He, one, he had a disciplined acquisition strategy. And two, he had this fanatical focus on the customer. Where did he end up? So zero to $500 million, in 2007, he sold Intertel to Mitel for $730 million. So if I had to give an elevator pitch, today Crescendo is more or less the same management team using the exact same playbook in the same industry. So that's what really got me interested in this company.
0: Okay, so what so, do they do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... Crescendo is a company in the UCAS space. So UCAS is Unified Communications as a Service. Um, There's basically three primary ways that we use UCAS today. So there's there's collaboration, which is like Zoom and Teams. And then there are fully integrated solutions like Crescendo, RingCentral, 8x8. So this is like your business communications. So Crescendo provides Um, full UCAS solutions to small and medium businesses. They do it with about 90% recurring revenue that's growing mid teens to mid twenties annually and about 10% hardware hardware sales. Uh, The gross margins on those aren't bad either. It's about 40%. So where the story gets really interesting though with Crescendo is earlier this year, they closed an acquisition with a company called NetSapiens. And this was announced earlier so Crescendo right now is trading around 6 bucks a share, around $133 million market cap. And they closed an acquisition of NetSapiens for $50 million. So it's pretty, pretty sizable for, for its market cap. And uh, now Crescendo is its own fully integrated UCAS solution. So they no longer have to white label their video solution. So now it is kind of a, a full service UCAS solution like RingCentral or 8x8.
0: Got it. Who are its major competitors at this point? Because it sounds, I mean, some of it, some of it sounds, you know, obviously the hardware is a bit of a commodity, but is it, is, is, is the whole goal, I guess, kind of like Roku where you just give them the hardware and then what really matters is hoping that they don't switch those, those phones and then, and then you just kind of collect the subscription revenue.
1: Yeah. So so Crescendo's major competitors now, I mean, if you ask them, they view their comp group as uh, Vonage, RingCentral, and 8x8. And those are like the, the full-service business communications platforms where you have RingCentral and your entire business can run on RingCentral. You can have your phone system linked to it. You have your internal chat. You have your video conferencing. Right. Um, I'm sorry. What was the second part of that?
0: Uh, the second question was just in terms of in terms of their strategy, it seems like the The whole idea is to give you know sell them the hardware, but then just hope that they retain and don't switch their, you know, uh, I guess I guess communications, and collect the subscription revenue over time.
1: Yeah. So in terms of that crescendo is is kind of uniquely positioned. Um, so in terms of the exact same playbook. Uh, Mahalo and, and, crescendo have competitors or sorry, they have customers on long-term contracts. So their backlog is 28 and a half million, um, pro forma, the new combined crescendo net sapiens had about 28 million in revenue last year. So their backlog is massive and it's growing every year. And whereas other companies like, um, ring central and eight eight have customers on either month to month. And I believe it's either Vonage or, or um, eight eight use annual contracts. So the the whole value pitch that a lot of these companies use, all the UCAS integrated companies is they can save a lot of money by switching to a UCAS solution. And kind of the the benefit for that for for businesses is is as a business grows and expands, they only have to add an additional seat. I mean, you know, it's an extra 20 bucks a month for a new employee, right? Versus with the, the traditional, you know, like black Mitel desk phones, You have to have someone from IT come in and install phones. You have to deal with network maintenance. So Crescendo's whole value pitch is that they can save money. And that's kind of what I view as one of the actual main risks to this entire um, investment, not only in Crescendo, but in a UCAS company, is the the total addressable market for UCAS is massive and it's growing. But a lot of these companies have a, a hard time kind of penetrating the market. And it's not from each other with with competitors like Ring Central and 8x8, it's actually from the traditional premise-based phone system. Hmm. And the kind of the reason for that is those those black desk phones are pretty resilient. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> you know, if, if anyone listening has uh, ever seen one, but it's like, well, when's the last time someone from IT came in and actually updated this, right? Yeah, probably never. So, It's uh, right now the the total addressable market is about 24 billion for UCAS solutions, and it's growing double digits annually, but depending on where you're getting your estimates from cloud based solutions like crescendo or ring central are only about 30% penetrated so 70% of the market is still using these black desk phones. and I mean, COVID was kind of a nice tailwind to this industry because when COVID came, you couldn't just take that phone home with you. You had to mm-hmm. switch over to something like UCAS. Yeah. But that's kind of what I'm viewing as the main risk is actually not from competitors, but from the, the way communications used to be with those IT line phones.
0: I mean, it looks like such a super capital business. It's grown revenue from, call it $8 million in 2015 to $17 million, uh, last 12 months. And it's expanded gross margins from 54%, almost to 70% now, which is pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty uh, nutty. And then it looks like it just turned profitable in 2019. Um, So a question I have for you, when did you find this idea? Because I know when we, going way back to the beginning of the conversation, you said you like to look for companies that are gap profitable, Um, but it looks like this company just turned that last year. So did you just find it last year or was this kind of maybe an exception to your rule?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, and, and to, to give you one more point actually is, so in in 2015, it was about 8 million when Steve Mahalo switched this, this old company called iMergent to Crescendo and they started doing communications. Their first year selling communications equipment was 2011 and it was 110,000 in revenue. So from 2011 to 2020, went from 110,000 to 16.4 million last year. (laughs) So the, the Kager on that is nuts. It's not bad. Um, in terms of that i found this idea through screens i mean i'm sure everyone has a lot of you know different ways to do it um you know i like to do screens i like talking to people on on twitter sometimes people will just be super passionate and just lay out the bull case for you for a stock and why it's mispriced, which is great nothing like commitment bias to find ideas (laughs) Um, but in terms of this i i did find this idea fairly recently around like december or so last year in 2020 and one of the screens that I run is uh, I like to look for um, companies that have some return on equity. So just even, I I think it's zero point two five percent return on equity is the threshold I set. Market cap less than two hundred million, and then okay. insider ownership above thirty percent, and just 30% those three metrics. But see, but for micro caps, it, it might not necessarily be high. You know, yeah. so that actually, what what made me look at this was. When I saw this, I said, okay, well, this has like 60% insider ownership and you looked and you go, wait, this company is a hundred million dollar market cap. This means that, you know, the CEO has $55 million of stock. Yeah. And when that happens, you just kind of stop what you're doing and you kind of like, well, I have to look into what this guy, what he's all about, because (laughs) that's, uh, I mean,
0: that's a big, $50
1: million in one company.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that 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 makes sense. And do you do you find most of your ideas, I guess, based on based on screens? Because one thing, and this is, you know, obviously going off on a tangent, but one thing I've I've thought is I think screens genuine generally work better on micro caps than they do on your, you know, say mid to larger caps, just because I think you tend to find more value traps the higher you go up if you're just screening based on quantitative. Um, but granted the, the illiquidity of microcaps, I do think you can still get away with finding ideas through quantitative screens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do find quite a few ideas through screens, probably half and then the other half are through uh, my network of you know fellow investors that we'll you know kind of share ideas with.
0: Yeah, Now, when you look out, three to five years, what are you thinking in terms of valuation? I'm looking at tickers estimates for 2022 mm-hmm. and it looks like they're projected to do close to 30 million in revenue, about four and a half million in EBITDA and close to well since they're so capital light, basically 4 million in free cash flow. Um, what How are you thinking about this company over the next three to five years from a valuation perspective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like, first off, let's just say, all these UCAS companies are trading on price to sales. Um, that's because they are kind of a, a bottomless pit for SGNA, for ad spend, and then also for R&D. Um, so a lot of them aren't really profitable at the operating income level. So because they're on price to sales, if you look at a, a comp group, I mean, it can range anywhere from, you know, 2 to 20, depending on size. Yeah, which is, it, It's a very wide range. Um, So right now the combined crescendo net sapiens is around like four or five times sales. I think more realistic based on the fact they're gap profitable and they have earnings, you know, even if you're being somewhat conservative is about seven times, right. That's what I was thinking. You know, a reasonable range, right? Yeah. Now, one of the reasons I I absolutely love micro caps is management is, I don't want to say imperfect, but not as polished as you're going to find that, you know, your, your,
0: Companies. Yeah, that's a good way of stating it,
1: you know, and, and so that's the thing is you can find a lot of really valuable information just going through conference call transcripts, or, you know, even just shooting an email off to management, they can just, you know, give you some amazing insights. So crescendo as a as, as a company is growing 20 to 30% organically every year. And that seems if you actually look at the growth rate, 20 to 30% organic growth seems somewhat reasonable. Now, with NetSapiens, the company they acquired, NetSapiens has a different business model where they sell to resellers, who then sell NetSapiens UCast solution. NetSapiens has 200 reseller partners, and on a recent fireside chat with Little Grapevine, the president and COO Doug Gaylor said, "Well, hey, in any given year, you know, five to 10% of these resellers are looking to sell, so we can just start doing a, a roll-up acquisition strategy." Because they already own the platform, the resellers are selling, right? Mm-hmm. So, if you go through the conference call transcript from the most recent from Q1, uh, Steve Mahalo was saying, "Well, I'm going to be extremely disappointed if we're not growing at 40% for the next couple of years, right?" <laughs> so,
0: that's a bold if, statement.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely, and that's the thing. That's what's really exciting. Is so if you're looking at 20 to 30% organic growth, and then they have this inorganic growth capability through, you know. Roll up acquisitions, you know. I, I think you could be looking at forty percent growth. Now, if you want to just kind of split the difference and say, okay, let's say it's just thirty, then right, you know, the high yeah. end of their, their organic growth. Yeah. If they grow at thirty percent a year for the next couple years, and um, you are going to be diluted a little bit, and that was I love that they're transparent about that, um, which is something that management, especially in microcaps, doesn't really do. You could be looking at you know getting fifty percent returns annualized for a couple years here.
0: Yeah, that'll meet that'll meet a lot of people's thresholds.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: do do you do you ever worry? And maybe this is just me being too pessimistic, but do you ever worry that an owner operator that owns that much of the company, when he says numbers like, "Hey, I don't, you know, I don't see why we can't grow forty percent a year for the next two years," like, do you worry that maybe a like a like like a bit of that is almost like not pumping's obviously the wrong word, but like, do you think that there's some gravitas there that doesn't necessarily need to be there, and it's only there because he has such a large percentage of his net worth at at stake
1: yeah i mean that is a good question so with it with a normal micro cap absolutely i'm terrified of that because i'm thinking okay if you're going to grow 40 percent a year you're just going to dilute me to hell yep. and you know i'm gonna you know the the market cap's going to double and the stock price is going to stay the same right i mean it's yep. going to be terrible for me with steve mihalo in particular and you know a, a their company. I'm not particularly worried about that because they're very transparent about being shareholder friendly. And it's actually something they're gradually doing is they're, they are trying to slowly dilute Mahalo down from his, you know, 55% owner uh, ownership. A few years ago, it was like 70%. And I mean, he's in his seventies. There's a plan for when he dies, that stock is going to go into a foundation that a couple um, employees at Crescendo are on the board of, so they're not just going to dump it. Yep. But, they are, they're looking to grow. And the thing is, I mean, it, like I've said, this is the exact same playbook before is this industry is super fragmented. I mean, there's so many UCAS players, um, you know, cause you have your, your teams in zoom, you have your, your avias, you have your crescendos and umas. So the, one of the ways to grow is through acquisitions. And in, in a lot of cases, I would be kind of worried about it, but with net sapiens, they showed, a really intelligent acquisition because they, so they paid 50 million for the business. 10 million was in cash. And yeah. of that 10 million, 2 million was for net sapiens to clean up their debt. And then there's 40 million in stock. So, I mean, it already sounds like crazy dilution, but only 3 million is dilutive today. The rest is in options that are going to invest over time. So even in dilution, it's, it's kind of moderated and it, it's not terrible. I mean, and, my my biggest risk in my mind with Crescendo is that like, sometimes I worry that they're they're playing a game that others in the industry don't care about. So hmm. Crescendo is is you know very transparent about being gap profitable. They they love that they're gap profitable because you know a lot of them are big owners of the stock. They care about running a profitable company, but in this day and age, I mean, if you look at all these other companies, none of them are, none of them are profitable because they you know if you go down the income statement, you know, after SG&A and and r and they're, you know, they're already in the red. Yeah. And sometimes I I, I guess I, I wonder, um, I, I think the biggest risk is that, you know, Crescendo might be playing in a game in terms of gap profitability that no one else in the industry is playing. And because of that, they could lose out on expanding market share and maybe going from Small and medium businesses may be scaling up to larger businesses where they can win a lot of clients.
0: Right, because I guess the bet that those other companies are making that aren't gap profitable is we're going we're gonna to burn now, acquire a bunch of customers because we believe in the revenue retention of our, of our model. And so if we can get enough right now when, when, when liquidity is high, when we've got access to the markets... That's gonna matter more because in the long term, we'll have a broader base of customers generating higher revenue retention, um, you know high margin subscription revenue, whereas crescendo at this point, I guess you' what you're saying is you're you're wondering if them focusing on gap profitability is actually hampering their growth potential.
1: Yeah, absolutely. that is what I'm saying because I, I just I think in in the market you kind of have to assess, what is you know working and selling and i mean don't don't get me wrong i mean crescendo has gone from hundred ten thousand dollars in sales to sixteen point four million last year and if you look at their acquisition of net sapiens pro forma it's 28 million so so i mean they are growing their top line rapidly so i, I don't want to be asking too much of them i just i, I think that with the and the way that they've run it they might be fixating on a, a metric that is maybe important for, for value guys, but it's not going to be what gets them that, you know, crazy 20 times sales multiple on the market.
0: Right. And it, I think, I think it touches at a, at a more important point in that screening again for pure gap profitability, you tend to sometimes miss these incredible ideas because gap profitability, while great on the surface, there are incredible businesses out there, you know, Amazon, I, you know, I hate, I hate to use Amazon as an example, but you know, they weren't really gap profitable for a long time, because um, they were continually reinvesting back into their business. And I just think for, for, for investors and kind of microcaps in particular, it really is a company by company basis, because if the company and if management can clearly articulate why they're burning cash and why they're losing money. And if they have a strategy where at the end, right, the end game is this beautiful, this, this, this beautifully elegant economic model where, you know, the product and service customers love it. And they solve, you know, they solve a really intense pain point for their customers and they're generating high margins on a, on a, on a per customer per service basis, you know, five to 10 years out, then it really doesn't matter if they're burning cash now, if you believe in that model. And if you can kind of, if you can kind of logically articulate that going forward. Um, Just speaking, speaking for myself, really, I used to, I used to just focus purely on gap profitability until I realized, Hey, there are companies out there that are using public markets to fund their growth strategies that aren't going to look good today, but will look good if they're successful in three to five years.
1: Yeah. I I actually think it was Bill Miller um, who, owned amazon for a long time and i think he was the one on like a podcast where he said well hey if you actually remove their r&d expense this business is just gushing cash Mm -hmm. you know and and i would say amazon's r&d expense i mean it brought you amazon prime you know like amazon prime video i mean it's their r&d expense was very useful yeah so it's something i've definitely learned yeah and then I mean, Hey, if you know any companies that are gap profitable, but had, you know, legitimate one-time expenses, let me know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: well, but they're actually good companies.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, there's, there's, there's a mental model that I've used very, very frequently in, in companies that I've both invested in and, and, and written about is this idea of shifting from growth CapEx to maintenance CapEx and Mm -hmm. modeling out what the company looks like on a run rate basis when they switch from growth to maintenance and, you really can get a powerful business if you take, um, you know, say like a hotel chain or a franchise or any sort of store that has plans to build out these stores. And so a lot of the CapEx today is in growth and then if you remove that growth and you just say okay they've captured their adjustable market and now they've switched from growth to maintenance what will that free cash flow look like it's kind of incredible the lever that you can pull at that point because in most cases these maintenance capex expenditures are are multiples lower than what the growth capex is and you can f- you can find a business that says well look if i can invest during the growth phase and stay with them as soon as they switch from growth to maintenance, there is so much cash coming through that they can buy back stock, they can issue special dividends, they can do all sorts of fun things.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the goal always is to find the stock that, you know, goes from either value to growth or the growth to value. I mean, if you look at like Microsoft, I mean, that was the, the classic stock of, it was, you know, like a dot-com stock and then it was an unloved value stock and now it's, you know, a hyper growth stock. And the entire time, I mean, I, I'm sure maybe you thought the same thing, but in like 2017, I spent a lot of time thinking like, is it even possible for a company to have a market cap of a trillion dollars, you know? Yeah. And now it's yeah. like a joke because I was sitting there going, well, you know, there's all these companies that might be good, but it's just not possible. And I was, I was thinking of this, I think it was Monish Pabrai who had um like a, a story about, you know, if you look in nature, the large animal you're going to find on land is like an elephant because, you know, you're the, you know nature can't support anything larger than an elephant, but I guess we're seeing that it can in terms of these, you know, trillion dollar valuations on companies.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because I think, I forget who it was. I know it, uh, I know David Perel of, um, you know, he is the writing guy on, 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 on Twitter and all that. And he had a tweet once about cities and how you, if you, if you think about companies as cities, companies that grow or companies that, have city-like uh, qualities they actually get stronger as they grow so you know you have a city you've got you know kind of this local ecosystem and as more people populate and expand it actually increases the strength of that city and you get this nice flywheel effect going with with how durable that city becomes and um, just 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 kind of thinking like that and and that's, that's helped me shift my mind to trying to wrap my head around how big companies can actually get and trying not to not to pigeonhole myself. But you mentioned, you know, the first one trillion dollar company. It's it's funny now because you can take a billion dollar market cap company and that's now a small cap. Like that is a small cap stock now. When you've got one trillion dollar market caps, one billion, which is which is awesome because I love the one billion dollar market cap range. Um it's just so funny how that is now a small, you know a small cap, and I mean $10 dollars $10 now for uh for for a stock's market cap. I mean that's that's got to be less than Nano. I, I, I guess at this point, like like an atom cap or a cork cap. Like I don't I don't even know what you call that.
1: Yeah, and you know it's funny. Uh, I'm sure you know because I know you like micro caps. Is the longer you invest in micro caps, you you know you start to like look at stocks, and you know when you start out with micro caps, you're like I don't know, three hundred million that seems risky. And you know, the longer you invest 300 million, you're like, well, everyone already, everyone's already found it. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no upside in this anymore. And that's just yep. not true. Yep. I mean, so, I mean, some of my, my purchases on xL they were as high as like $400 million market cap, Yep. you know? So, and that was totally, you know, great.
0: Oh yeah. No, I love the, I love the, you know, the 500 to $1 billion market cap, which now with the trillion dollars, that's a, maybe you can make the case that that's a micro cap, but, um, you know, looking, looking ahead, looking beyond crescendo, I know that, you know, it's one of your core, one of your core holdings. What other ideas are on your radar right now or stuff that's in your research box, waiting, waiting to, uh, you know, maybe enter the portfolio or maybe, you know, getting, getting a strong consideration for some of your money.
1: Yeah. Um, so w- one stock that I, I really like um, that I'm, I'm trying to build a position in right now, which I guess I'm, you know, violating one of the laws talking about a stock I'm building a position in is a that- first time design limited. The ticker is FTDL. 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 Yeah. Okay. So first time design limited, um, they make clocks, bar carts, um, just like, um, like decorative stuff in your house. Okay. And it, it seems like, you know, why, why the hell would you be interested in this company? Right. So it's super illiquid. I mean, the, the average daily volume is like 900 shares, but for the past few weeks, it's been like 300 or less every day. Um, it's been it's been brutal. Um, but what's really interesting about it is it is kind of a, like a special situation turnaround where the CEO Chris Baring came in about 10 years ago. When he came in this company was a mess. It was just the classic micro cap. They were like a clock maker. They were a doll maker. You know, they had a financial services business. It was just the classic, you know, conglomerate microcap that was going nowhere.
0: Yeah, didn't know so what to they, do, so they just started doing a bunch of different stuff.
1: Right, you know, and, and you know, it's just not a good situation. And over time, they got rid of all those businesses, and they just focus on you know designing beautiful home accessories that are you know functional. Uh, an investor named Andrew Bass got involved, and between Chris Barry and Andrew Bass, they own I don't know like ten percent of the stock, but they've grown sales every year rapidly. And the business is finally starting to get at the point where they have some nice operating leverage where they're, they're able to grow more and more is dropping to the bottom line and you know when, when he came in the business they had one international distributor now they have like seven they're able to mm-hmm. expand product lines they're going to look at launching internationally um, they've hinted at doing an uplist so there might be some more liquidity in the stock which is really nice yeah and they I think the thing about them is they they seem to be a really intelligent pair together because Andrew Bass is teaching the CEO, Chris Barron, how to communicate to investors what matters. And they're also making sure they're making the right long-term moves for the business. And there's just some things in there that just makes your your value investor heart so warm and happy. Like (laughs) there's a story where I guess during winter, and they're in uh, Wisconsin, during winter, he put a lock on the thermostat so it couldn't go above 71 because they were in that's dire funny. straits and needed to save money. That's so, you know, I love that you, already. Yeah. When you hear stuff like that, you, you got to take a, a closer look at, you know, the, the, you know, owner operator model and how they, they really think like shareholders and they care about maximizing shareholder value.
0: Awesome. That's, that's, that's sweet. So in terms of, you know, uh, return or, you know, value it's, it, I, I looked it up on, Ticker, tried to look it up, but it only has data going to 2012, which is kind of interesting, right? You, yeah. you've, got, you've got almost this information arbitrage potential.
1: Uh, yeah, that is that is one thing is if you're on Ticker and you can't find good info, that's probably a sign you're looking in an unloved stock, right? Yep. <laughs> if you're on Ticker and you can't find it. Um, so in terms of valuation with that, I mean, it, it really depends what you want to look at for for like a comp group. Um, I would say it would be, you know, if you're looking at like your home goods stores. Um, so this isn't just like some, some little micro cap. I mean, their products are in Bed Bath & Beyonds and Targets and stuff. I mean, they're, they are there. Um, but in terms of comps, I mean, it's such a wide range. It could be anywhere from like 15 to 30, but even if you look at their EPS, I mean, it's still significantly undervalued, especially considering they're growing. I think the PE on that's like seven or 10.
0: Got it. Sounds good. So we're rolling into the end of this conversation. And I mean, this is this has been awesome. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we we got to chat hats off to Maj for making this happen. He basically threw your name out there and said, Hey, follow this guy. He's doing he's doing good work. And it's led to this terrific conversation. And I hope more people follow you. Um, last last couple of questions here, Rob. One, where can people go to find out more about you? And obviously, this is Twitter. But if there's if there's any other place where where people can go, let them know.
1: Yeah, so they can, um, it, it's just on Twitter, they can follow me at tiny stock ninja um, on Twitter. And seriously, I mean, if anyone wants to, to throw some love my way and explain how lemonade's reinsurance is legitimate, I'm all ears. Um, but you gotta you gotta give me more than just echoing back the way that they explain it.
0: I'm shocked that that name was still available for you whenever whenever you created that account.
1: You know what? It's funny. Um, it was actually, I was talking to a friend about stocks like a few years ago and cause he was really into like the, the Adobe's and you know, the Microsoft's right. And I, t- he was like, well, what do you like? I'm like, well, dude, I'm, I'm like a ninja. I mean, by the time that I've bought and sold and made my profits, you know, it's just now coming on your radar. Um, so I was shocked that name was available. So I had to take it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love it. Great, great, uh, great, great Twitter. Twitter profile picture, last, last question for you. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why?
1: Yeah. Um, So for me, that would be my maternal grandfather. He, he passed away when I was two, so I never got to meet him. Um, But super interesting guy from everything I've heard. So he was uh, Ukrainian and he was born into an immigrant family in New York. His dad died when he was a kid and his dad was just a janitor Uh, my grandfather never went to college and he joined the air force and then he opportunistically became a pilot, um, when he was allowed to do it without a college degree, which I I don't know if that was the thing back then, but it is now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, you know, kind of an amazing story, but I think that the best part that's going to resonate with everyone is no one even knew he was into investing, but then when he died we found out that he had the stock portfolio with millions in it. So
0: <laughs> I love it. I love yeah,
1: it. And I, I would have loved to uh, talk with him about investing. Cause it was like, wow, that, that guy was, you know, I guess an actual investing engine. No one had any idea.
0: Did you, did you, did you find any of his holdings? Like, do you know what, what he owned at the time? He,
1: uh, I, I know he owned a bunch of Chrysler actually.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah,
1: not Fiat Chrysler. Yeah, and it actually came up cause, uh, Several years ago, I owned Chrysler when I was doing a uh, a clone on Monish Pabri because he just laid out the value for you. And it was right yep. there to take it. So that's uh, how that story came up.
0: That's awesome. I love, I love, I love stories like that. And I think, I think that's a great way to end the end this discussion. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the show. People, go follow him at Tiny Stock Ninja. You will, will not be disappointed in the content that he creates. And he's a He's always got some ideas and um, you know he presented a few here and Rob thanks so much again for coming on the show. I look forward to continuing our relationship
1: Yeah, absolutely.